Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Flight Through Entirety, the only Doctor Who podcast whose origin story will be the subject of a TV movie sometime later this year. Johnny Lee Miller's playing me. I'm Nathan. I'm Peter. I'm Simon. I'm Greg. And I'm a much scrunched and abused hanky soaked in piss and vinegar for this one. Well, it's the 21st of November 2013, and in two days' time, Doctor Who will face his greatest and most terrifying enemy, his 50th birthday. So let's turn the urometer all the way back to 1963 to see how the legend begins as we discuss Mark Gatiss' anniversary special, An Adventure in Spain and Time. It's funny, this one, because I hadn't seen it maybe since the year of its broadcast or soon really? after. It's nearly been 10 years since I watched this. And I was actually surprised by how much I enjoyed it, to be honest. You were surprised? Yeah, well, I wasn't surprised. I was not surprised. I'm not a big fan of the sort of biopic oh, I documentary thing because, it, it, because if it properly tracks someone's life, it tends to be kind of just a bunch of things that happen and we don't really learn anything, just like life, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or history. Yeah, yeah. Or time you cannot, <laughs> cannot change even if you try, apparently. <laughs> but I think this is given a sort of unity, I guess, by making it the story of Bill Hartnell more than anything else. Yes, it's, it starts yeah. as the story of Verity and then quickly becomes the story of Bill Hartnell and... Uh, it's it's not a biopic per se because it's about events rather than a person yeah. per se. Um, and usually these kind of things are reasonably fictionalised and, of course, we can discuss the various historical inaccuracies <laughs> in due course. Or accuracies. We'll get to that. Well, no, there, there are many. There are lots of accuracies, mm. but, of course, there are also some things that they, you know, change. But uh, I, I think um, not only is it so heartwarming and beautiful, it is also – structured in a way which is a logical story. It creates a 90-minute movie which isn't just here's a series of stuff and, oh, we're at the end of 90 minutes and so we'll stop here. Yeah. That's right. If it had been a docudrama, I think it would have been a lesser thing. Probably so in, tedious. In, yeah. In, well, maybe not, but it would have just been a retelling of the events, like you said. And in 2010, there was the thing which paved the way for this, which was the road to Coronation Street, uh, oh, which okay. was Coronation Street's 50th anniversary sort of making of program. And I think that was more of a docudrama and it wasn't quite as entertaining, although it was successful. This works because it's not just the story at the genesis of the program. It's the story of the people involved and the fact that Bill Hartnell, like we mentioned, um, was an actor in the twilight of his career and it was almost his redemption story if you want. Um, but it is also the story of pioneers. And so what Mark zeroes in on is the fact that Verity was obviously a young female producer in a corporation which was full of middle-aged men. Warris was a young Anglo-Indian director, in fact, the youngest drama director that the BBC has ever had, making his way. And you want the stories of these people. You want to know why Doctor Who was pioneering and innovative effort and it's tied up in the fact that these were young go-getting people yeah. and it's also a love letter it's a love letter to Absolutely. doctor who it's a love letter to the 60s generally mm. it's a love letter to television center particularly yeah. to, to um, the founding powers of vidal sassoon <laughs> <laughs> uh, the rock bed on which yeah. this is built yeah. So, yeah. so it manages to do the whole love letter thing without being too cheesy it walks the right side of the line. It's astonishing how little crunchy fromage there is on this, isn't there? Did you know Gators could be this good? Oh, this oh, is yes. clearly the very best, best thing, thing he has mm. ever written for Doctor Who. I sort of clearly. look at his Doctor Who stories and I think, can I have a bit more of this, please? It's beautifully done. This felt, I don't know, I'd like to hear from Greg, but this felt to me as a roundtable question a really thin premise. And I'm looking at this thinking- Much like Doctor Who. <laughs> well, exactly. No, that's exactly right. Because I'm looking at it thinking- how and this is the case I know, and Peter, you know this of all narrative dramas. 
how will you engage with thin facts that on the surface no one will be interested in unless they're fans? And it's, well, you make it about the human drama. Absolutely. You make it about the fallen gods. You make it about the rise. I mean, this is really a Greek tragedy, isn't it? You've got Athena rising over there and then you've got the old god. You've got well, he's hardly Zeus, isn't he? But you've got poor old Prometheus crumbling to ashes on, as Bill Hartnell on the right. And then I suppose... Caroline Ford is the Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> but you also <laughs> reorder things a bit because some of the historical problems are bringing the emotions forward to the right part of the story rather yes. than where they actually occurred in the real world. So and collapsing theater. characters together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But I do like that Richard Martin and Warris Hussein are actually the same person, even though they're played by two actors in this. <laughs> According to the script, it's still Warris. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think what it manages to do, and I guess it's that conceit where we start on Bill Hartnell driving to work on his last day of work. Oh, so and cool. is he, where yes. is he? Arms yes, yes. with his everlasting is. matches. Yes, <laughs> the, the, the kiss to the Daleks novelisation there. Yeah. Just uh, gorgeous. I, is it uh, his way to or is it his way back? No, no, he's on his way back. It's leaving after his, oh, last, okay. his last scene. Yeah. And he could actually be on his way home in Kent. That is a path from the BBC no. Television Centre to Kent goes past Barnes Commons. <laughs> <laughs> and and so having the policeman say, you know, you're in the way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is a little bit on the nose. It's but the most obvious yeah. thing. Yeah. A magic there's, there's another bit there. Of course, what does the policeman do? He knocks four times on the car. <laughs> I didn't pick that one up. <laughs> no, I didn't say that either. I mean, magic realism would have had Bill step into the police box, but I like this. I like this yeah. one. Well, I suppose that could have been a choice rather than Matt Smith appear at the end, and we'll get to that. You could have had him getting into the police box on Barnes Common. If we're going to get to materialise, we're yeah. going to get to Matt Smith appearing on Nita Hanky right now. <laughs> I guess I guess what it's doing is it tells the story of someone who is a bit of a miserable old bastard ha. and we see him famous miserable bastard and we see him being mean to his granddaughter Jessica who mm. we now know about But as Brian we? said uh, when we were watching it he said that was my grandfather yeah like his grandfather would speak to him mine as well that, yep yeah in that kind of brusque tone, you know, sit there, don't make a noise when I don't want you to make a noise. Yeah. I'm reading the paper or I'm watching the television or I'm having my scotch or whatever it is. Very, very difficult. What it is is it's a beautiful portrait of a man whose time has passed. Yeah. His era has passed. Even in 1963, his way of doing things is being pushed aside. It's it's the kind of the Second World War generation, I suppose, yeah. that are now well, being replaced by the baby boomers. Well, or the like the theme boomers. of... Um, like the theme of the idiot's lantern yeah. as well, which yeah. is the yeah. same kind same of same kind of thing. Yeah. So he learns to, you know, he becomes the doctor. He becomes Doctor Who, who is a silly, cuddly character, as we all observed, I think, when we went through this for flight through entirety, that he's actually much less grumpy than John Nathan Turner thought he was, or Richard <laughs> Herndall thought he was. He's actually really lovely. So I assume that we've all seen the interview with Bill Hartnell that is in one of the DVDs yeah. which they unearthed where he's in the after dressing room yes. in a panto after 10th Planet. And he this very much informs how he is depicted in this because that's a glimpse into Bill Hartnell the man, yeah. Yeah. which we don't have. Not fumbling, not stuttering. No. Yeah, and sort of and sort of small and tight and resentful yeah. of life. And, in fact, one He's of his wet lines. budgie. <laughs> <laughs> one of his lines in this is drawn directly yep. from that, where he says, I'm a legitimate star yes. of legitimate. film and theatre. Yes. Yeah. That word legitimate yes. of film and theatre, not of television, because television, even having done documentaries, not, real. not real. It's a bit <laughs> of a Before we get all to like that, doing Ray, yeah. you know he spent over a decade living with Charles Hawtrey. No. <laughs> yeah, they shared digs on and off. Yeah, but they were very, very good mates. Yeah. So before that would make we him get a legitimate to- star of the theatre. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose living with Charles, but Charles was completely effing mental. Now he right. would actually, apparently, he would set off fire alarms so he could get the fireman over, and then he'd drop his knickers for them. Right. Oh my God, <laughs> yeah, much like this podcast. But, yeah. but, but if we just, kind of, if I can just expand on that point, it's not just the choice of words which they get so right, and they're lifting it from that interview, which is probably the only decent. 
length yeah. clip we have of Hartnell being the Hartnell. The only primary source. Yeah. The only primary source. It's not just that. It's the delivery. The intonation. It's the intonation. That angry, very, legitimate. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's not just the way he says that. It's everything he says during that interview is very hard-edged and very army and very, you know, mm. brusque, the whole thing. And that, that I think, uh, is what we see in the, in the performance. And when he's Bradley. dealing with that reporter who's there, he, it's almost like he believes that the reporter is a station below him. It's, it's oh, like well, treating yeah. like treating people badly in in a restaurant, right. which yeah. in fact he does in yeah. this episode. Yeah. yeah, yes, he has a sense of class, not not, not necessarily just upper class, middle class, lower class, but in terms of almost caste system. In That's terms right. of it's Mr. Hartnell you only work to you. in a shop. Yeah. It's Mr. Hartnell to you, etc. Yes, all that kind of stuff. Sunny boy, and then I guess what happens is the tragedy is twofold one is his increasing illness and then the other is the people that he loved and relied on uh gradually disappearing from the show one of the things we hear about all the time in doctor who is the team of people and the team is being built and then it's being torn apart and built again torn apart and towards the end he's obviously not interested in building new teams yeah Especially yeah. not when they bring in a statuesque Scandinavian to play Ben. Oh. <laughs> Far too tall. The Ben in this is so gay. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but, but, but all those all those repeated shots of the publicity yeah. shots being taken in the courtyard of Television Centre, which is actually, I think, from the first anniversary drinks that they have when the show's been sold to That's Australia. That's right, that famous photograph of them yes. all raising yeah. glasses. One of the with Verity. Balls. With yeah. Verity, yeah. So it's just obviously it, it's not real, but it is actually quite beautifully done the way David Bradley is less and less engaged yeah. as each new cast arrives. And by the time you get to Ben and Polly, he's just, he's actually just not there. Yeah, mm. yeah. And the whole thing with that entire courtyard thing is it's a panopticon, of course. So it's got a point in the middle where you can see everything around it, which is that television centre thing that Simon mentioned before. It's a lovely television centre. Yeah. It's featured so prominently at a range of points and it's a very different appearance each time. Is Television Centre at this point, like when does Television Centre get sold off? So this was the last drama that was ever shot at Television Centre and I believe that very soon after, like maybe within a month, it was closed and was starting to be renovated into apartments. Yeah. So it is very definitely that, isn't it? I mean, there's no way that Mark Gatiss isn't making it a love letter to... Oh, absolutely. So even and though the show's not actually shot there no. in the early days, but yeah. it's no. still home base. And, you know, the production office isn't there. It's at Threshold House. Whatever. Oh, is it really? I'm, I'm, I'm to- I'm, no, but I'm totally willing to let that go. Oh, yes. Yeah. Just all of those loving, establishing shots of the horseshoe at night with the lights lit up and everything. As a Doctor Who fan, when you were growing up, it was just this kind of far-off mecca. It was like our Hollywood um, <laughs> yeah. where it would just, you know, make these incredible adventures with mummies and maggots and things like that. And to actually see it and to see it evoked so beautifully really tugs at the heartstrings. It does, yeah, yeah. The first time that I went to London by myself where, you know, I was just spending time doing whatever it was that I wanted and it was – you know, 2008 or something like that. Without being interfered with by parents or partners. Not parents, partners. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did do a little pilgrimage to BBC Television Centre just so that I could say that I had sort of been there and seen it. And it was. It was exactly that. I'm standing outside thinking somewhere in that building Tom Baker was – telling everyone to hurry up really grumpily so that he could be replaced by Peter Davison later on in the same shot. And it is really special. And I guess the other thing that this is celebrating is the knowledge that we have of how the program was made. And Doctor Who, when it was released on DVD from sort of 2000 onwards, became perhaps one of the most well-documented television productions. Oh, the most. In history. Well, even before that. Even yeah. long before that. And you're not just talking about the telesnaps, are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> but all of those documentaries, every story gets a documentary yeah. made about yeah, it yeah, based yeah. on stuff that we have. I mean, got- we know the entire history of Carol Ann's sandwich orders, don't we? Interesting the waves of that. I mean, at the risk of digressing, you've got the kind of the, the early wave of Doctor Who knowledge, which is basically effectively the received wisdom of three people, 50% of which is actually wrong or just their memories <laughs> of, of things. And then it kind of gets built up in the in the very late 80s and into the 90s um, yeah. and into the 90s. And then you get the whole, the yeah. third level again is then the DVD documentary. Yeah, that's right. It basically has, goes Jeremy Bentham, Doctor Who magazine archive. 
DVD yes. documentaries. Yeah. 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 Because, I mean, I was watching this with Calvin on the couch yesterday and he was quite engaged in it. He won't normally watch Doctor Who with me, but he certainly was watching this. And I just couldn't resist, you know, okay, maybe twice in 95 <laughs> minutes. Like, I didn't go crazy with we know that that's a real thing. <laughs> you know, that actually happened. <laughs> you know, I've seen the pilot where the doors, doors open and yeah. close. <laughs> and even little touches like him dropping the scarf on the ground. Yeah. Um, yeah. With the oh. best ro- eye roll ever from Morris. Yes, yes, yes. Just those little touches are, are what part of what makes it. And I like that, oh, that so they're all conflated <laughs> and, and they're done in an overstated way. One thing that got me this time even more so than it did on first viewing, is that the performances are not just RP. They're really boulderized, especially those of, I mean, it's, it's unfair to say which cast members, but there are some, uh, I, Jackie Hill never played it like that. And even Carol Ann got a lot more naturalism in. And even when you watch Bill in his farewell speech, I just think the tone, there's, it's not, it's done like this to serve the narrative. Yeah. But there's actually, the one thing I would say that I would criticise about this production is that it lets the truth of the original performers down a little by not giving them their dues. They were not that wooden or they were not that obvious. I think that's just a, a kind of a, a film and television trope, to use that word. <laughs> of- but Susan, <laughs> you have still... Yeah, it, it's played you honestly up. live here? But when people, <laughs> when people are acting in these kind of things within the show, they often make it a bit more wooden to make it clear that this is- It's TV. Inside TV. Acting. And as well as mocking the, the sort of the terribly, terribly RP. Um, I'm actually too excited about the wigs <laughs> to, to, to really be offended. I actually thought the woman who played Barbara was- Jim and Pearl. Oh, damn, yes. great. Especially you look like us, you sound like us. <laughs> she's, been, she's been having that on repeat. Yeah. Just that, like. So good. I well, think that Jamie Blover captures the essence of William Russell really well. Considering who his father was and what he lived with all those years. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Though, when he does the police box standing in a junkyard line, I think it's absolutely perfect. <laughs> okay, can I just say, these recreations are special magic for Doctor Who fans to watch these iconic scenes, which you know so well, remounted so lovingly. It so- brings a tear to your eye, but also it put me in mind of our legendary plays from the 90s for the <laughs> yes. conventions. So I half expected Ian to turn around and say, let me get this straight. A police box standing in a junkyard can go anywhere within 20 miles of the BBC television centre? <laughs> that, 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 that was your line. <laughs> I heard a cry. I, I think that was one of the best slides you wrote, Peter. <laughs> I think, too, one of the things that may be a little unfair, and I think Richard is likely to agree with me on this, is the reliance on Billy Fluffs as a way of indicating that he's getting increasingly ill and we don't know why those happen but it is telling that they often don't happen you know they don't happen when he's playing the abbot of amboise they don't happen apparently yeah they don't happen generally in the historicals yeah so maybe it's just a question of engagement yeah yeah Yeah, and it's also you know it's a mix up of character tick and actor tick as well like some of those billy fluffs are character stuff yeah but certainly they are using them to tell the story of his illness i think yes no he's also i think the sequence where he's like you know trying to remember the lines from web planet and his wife's going through them and with his bed i think he's just tired he's he's old and tired i think there are two stories there there's there's one where it's such a grueling schedule he's got 25 minutes that he's carrying every week of new dialogue half of which is practically unintelligible i mean it makes me shudder to think about it well exactly and so I think there are two lines there. One is the illness, but the other is just the fact that it's just grueling. And actually, it gives truth to what Rex Tucker says early on. You know, the much maligned Rex Tucker in this, who I don't think was a misogynistic bastard, but is played like that. Yes. And Well, know, I think it's just to summarise the year of it. Given his yeah. due doing a shoddy job of directing the gunfighters. <laughs> there you yeah. I think it actually highlights, though, it's a nice little tonal piece because even 
men who would consider themselves to be gentlemen and, and good to their wives and daughters. I remember officers in the late seventies, early eighties, when I, as a student, still behaving like that. Well, yes, well, it, you got they had that documentary with Annabel Crabb, um, uh, old women in Parliament in, in in cabinet, and they all say, you know, on all sides of politics, basically the women in the room would all report afterwards of basically they'd come up with an idea, and then it would kind of be picked up, and suddenly it's somebody else's idea, and they're effectively, it's as if they're not even in the room. The example in in this story is Jeff Rawls' character, who he plays Mervyn Pinfield. He, he does, does. Isn't he wonderful? And he's delightful. I mean, no one is sweeter than him. I think mm. he's a really lovely actor, but. Verity still has to stop him from calling her dear my, lady. Yeah, dear yeah. lady. That's right. Can we just take a moment to realise that he was Plantagenus in front of yeah, us? Yeah, that's just. Of course, he was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Goodness. Goodness, I was thinking me. of him in Drop the Dead Donkey. But or Sarah right. Jane Adventures where he's the Mona Lisa sidekick. <laughs> so, so what is the actual real history there? I mean, obviously, dramatically, they're kind of a uh, – Mervyn Pinfield there is kind of a combination of Mervyn and David Whittaker really because David Whittaker is the one who gets the short straw. Yeah. He just doesn't get mentioned at all, which at I think all. is very sad. And yeah. Terry Nation, interesting. Uh, and well, Terry, Nation, no, Terry, Terry Nation gets a mention. Yeah, he's that does. comedy writer. The, yes. the Hancock person. The Hancock yeah, person. Yeah, but let's, let's, let's make that clear. Terry Nation. Role in the beginning of Doctor Who gets one line that comedy writer. Yeah. yeah. And, and Anthony Coburn gets no mention really at all. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, the fleas. Yeah. What about yeah. and later on? <laughs> I was waiting for Bunny yeah. Webber. We didn't get yeah. <laughs> And later on, when, you know, they're talking about what to do, do they have to cancel Doctor Who because Hartnell just can't go on? And Mervyn is in the room with Sidney Newman. Is he, like, what is his actual role? in Doctor Who, and then is he kind of senior in the BBC after that? (laughs) No. So this is one of the things which I can forgive because it's dramatic licence, but you notice that Mervyn Pinfield didn't get one of the they went on to do this at the end. That's because Mervyn Pinfield died in 1966, shortly after he was meant to direct Galaxy 4, and so couldn't have possibly been in the room to discuss William Hartnell leaving. (laughs) But but that's fine. (laughs) Yes, Mervyn Pinfield died before the end of this program. Correct. I mean, there are sort of other inaccuracies, obviously, if we're sort of talking about inaccuracies. There seems to be a lot of rehearsals going on in the actual set, which seem to be early rehearsals, script-in-hand rehearsals, the kind of stuff that would have been done at Acton or wherever. I mean, because they they just had like an afternoon in the studio, didn't they, uh, as a kind of a dress rehearsal before then going to dinner and then coming back and recording it. That's the way it worked, didn't it? That's right. So those scenes of Bill Hartnell and the others basically throwing around lines from the first episode with Sidney Newman coming in to see them on set and that, that was clearly long before they would actually be shooting. And, and so see it's a, the set. Yeah, and so it's a bit of a conflation. And, and Bill Hartnell saying, you know, I want to see the set of the TARDIS. Well, obviously they would have seen the set of the TARDIS because they were filming on the same day with that set. Yeah. But – Having said that, I think we can get away with that as dramatic license, even though as purists we know that that wasn't oh, exactly yeah, the way yeah. it was. The one thing which got me was the regeneration. I sat there thinking, you know, why is Bill Hartnell walking to set and shooting the regeneration and, like, there's a big lead-up, whereas we know these episodes were shot within basically real time. You know, they had an hour and a quarter of studio time to churn out 25 minutes. But then I did more research and realised that's actually what happened. Really? Uh, Mark got it right. The regeneration was shot first thing that day and then they went on and shot the rest of the episode. Oh. So it's actually true. How fascinating. Yeah. That's interesting. Was that because they were worried about getting the effect right? Yeah. Originally it was supposed to be that the Doctor would fall down with his cloak over his face and then the next episode the cloak would come off and Patrick Trout would be revealed. But Shirley Coward, the vision mixer, knew that one of the vision desks had a problem and would flare to white when you mixed it. And so she said, I think we can actually do an effect. Wow. And so they set it up and shot it first to make sure that you know it was all in the can. Interesting. That's stuff. actually a beautiful summary of why Doctor Who is so great. Is is people like that serendipity? It, it, it's yeah. it was not. No, it's not not really serendipity. It, it's people using what they have and almost using what they have, which they know is actually a bit broken, and leaning into that and making that work. Like the, the vision mixer is not supposed to flare to white. Do you know <laughs> that, what I mean? It's a broken that, piece of equipment. That's actually very that, poignant. That they're use, yeah. utilizing to, to give the effect, and then, I think that's a summary of, of, of why Doctor Who is so great. Um, or is made is made so great. Just going back again to the 60s thing, if I, if I may, those little touches to sort of place you in the 60s, but also to place you in an organisation which is so, you know, 
in some respects, stuffy as the BBC. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got the wonderful William Russell in that opening scene when Sidney Newman arrives in the car park and he's playing the uh, the car parking attendants. Like, yeah. that's not the way we do things at the BBC, <laughs> sir. I mean, it is such a good summary of that kind of person in those kind of roles in that kind of era. But also in the beginning where, you know, Hartnell's waiting to go out to shoot um, in his dressing room and waiting to go out and to shoot the regeneration scene. And you've got, you know, the stagehand knocking on the door saying, well, they're ready for you, Mr. Hartnell, blah, blah, blah. And um, he's saying, look, I'm only doing my job. That is such a good summary of that kind of, you know, I'm only doing my job sort of attitude. <laughs> yes, the BBC was full of stuffy shirts and jobsworths. Yeah, which is a, in contrast to the, to the vision mixer lady. It's like- uh, And in contrast to our three main people here, Verity, and yes. Warris yeah. and the other outsider who we didn't mention, the Canadian outsider, yeah. um, Sidney Newman. Yes. And isn't it nice to see Brian Cox in such a very varied role? I expected him to be playing the fifth monkey again with his telescope <laughs> and he really fatted up for the job. Really impressed. <laughs> I mean, he is in Doctor Who actually. He, he is. is the voice of the main ood oh, in the end of, of course time. course he is. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Cox main ood. <laughs> The other thing that's really playing with the timeline is bringing Dalek mania forward for a whole year because the Daleks did not become so popular until after the Dalek invasion of Earth. They were popular, but I had a look at the transcript in the dead planet or the Daleks, whatever you want to call it. Exterminate or extermination is mentioned five times by the Daleks in seven episodes. You can't imagine people, kids will be playing Daleks on the bus. Um, that's just to make the story work better. I mean... Yes, but I don't know about that because if you look at the ratings for the Daleks, they go from 6 million at the start to 10 million at the end. So the audience had doubled in this time and they particularly jump in the episode after the Daleks themselves were introduced. So there was a genuine cultural thing mm. that was tapped into there. I mean, it's all it's all conflated a little yeah. bit. That actually made me quite happy. I think there are two ways of Dalek money because, I mean, you remember the first Dalek story starts practically on Christmas so it's the following Christmas yeah. with Dalek after Dalek Invasion of Earth. Yes, that's when I think all the merchandise hits. The Dalek place. Starting the with place. that annual. <laughs> Starting with that annual, yes. Yeah. But I think I think that the I think that kids are almost certainly playing Daleks on buses and in playgrounds and so on. Mm. Um, and maybe it's one of those things. It's like it's like you know, Auton smashing out of shop windows in Speed of Space. It never actually happens, and it's almost like you know maybe they do only say exterminate five times in um, the first Dalek story, but. For some reason, that's the word that um, yeah. he's gra gra grabbed onto. I mean, I have to say the depiction of Sidney Newman, while I think it's an important character, so it's a little bit broad with the whole pop, pop, pop and all of that. Yeah. Um, and so I thought that was one of the slightly weaker elements. But Brian Cox does a really good job of bringing to life Sidney's outsider status. The yeah, fact he that he was really no is. nonsense and he had the right instincts. You want to be a producer, baby? You want to be a producer? John Lennon glasses, play a trumpet. That's actually, <laughs> but that's actually something that I wanted to point out, that sequence where, you know, he's all charming to, to Hartnell to try and win him over and then basically pulls Verity aside. That's such a great strip, finds a way to be a producer. Or, be a producer, find yeah. a way to deal with And that's when she obviously marches into Peter Brachacki, is it? Um, yeah. The uh, the TARDIS consult design. Another one who's slightly there's a lot more to Batraki's design yeah. than what he builds on that desk. But it's, yeah, it's, it's very actually very interesting because Sidney Newman is actually Michael Grade, who ah. is the who is a villain in Doctor Who history. Uh, Michael Grade Doctor is who. brought in from basically a commercial type enterprise. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's Channel Four, which is was he gone to Channel Four? Yeah, it's commercialish. Yeah. He comes from a commercial background, like um, Sidney Newman does, to shake the place up because the BBC is starting to flail a little bit in that it's. It's basically being overwhelmed by its own stuffiness, its own conservatism. Yeah. And uh, Sidney Newman's brought in to, to shake all that up. And likewise, Michael Grade in the mid-80s is brought in to shake up the BBC. And Michael well. Grade arguably does a decent job of it. It's his successor, Jonathan Powell and then John Burt, who really kind of muck things up. But Grade's term at the BBC, it was actually doing quite well and was quite popular. Oh, well, I'm just more talking about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, yeah, no. But, you know, in terms of Grade being a villain, yes, he's a villain to us, but yeah. he's broader instincts were probably right. Oh, yeah, probably and right. <laughs> I, I yeah, don't, cancel the show. <laughs> From well, what we you know, know of Newman, and this is the lovely thing of conflations and truth within dreamt reality, which is Doctor Who. And I really would – I know, we've talked about this before. I would have loved to have seen this actually go 
quite Cocteau-like and just truth and reality bleeding together. And then I would have liked four 90-minute episodes with that crew yes. revisiting new, both new and old monsters and new ideas before we started with the lovely Mr Capaldi. I just think it would have been quite beautiful. As we go through the history of Doctor Who in those first couple of years, just those glimpses are so important to us as fans. So it's not just the Daleks or the first episode. We're on the set of The Reign of Terror. Yeah. Oh. With <laughs> Marco Polo wearing the same. The hat. The hat. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah and, I would see Marco Polo, Marinus, and, and the Aztecs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think the Marco Polo thing was a really, really great thing. And that's a moment, Beautiful. isn't it? Don't we pan up from like seeing the set? on the little monitor on the black and white, black and, white mm. and someone says imagine if this was in color and then the camera goes up and it is yeah. in color it's so gorgeous and, yeah. well because that was an absolute triumph of design that's mm-hmm. Barry Newbury isn't it yeah yeah it yeah. is and of course you know it's important to this story because it's Warris Sane's second yeah, episode yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, we do have the illusion that Warris Hussein is the only director of Doctor Who for a certain block of time. But yes. I can, so I can live Four with stories. That. If yeah. only. Well, we, <laughs> we have Richard Martin, don't we, directing. Uh, and he's even wearing a cravat, which I yes, think is absolutely very delightful. Martin. And I love the fact that you got Douglas Canfield as uh, assistant floor manager. <laughs> <laughs> Dougie. Richard, one thing that I didn't think would ever happen is that Richard Martin wouldn't yell at a performer for some technical problem. He would just kind of let it happen. Yes, because- exactly. Because, <laughs> I mean, who cares? <laughs> okay. I have a couple of things to say about this. <laughs> so when I interviewed Richard yes. Martin in 1995, he was wearing a cravat very like that in the photographs yeah. that I took yeah. for DWM. I like the fact that he is played by Ian Hallard, who is Mark Gatiss's husband. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. And also to your point, Nathan, about um, Richard Martin not yelling anyone because he didn't care. He actually related a story to me when I interviewed him of being on Westminster Bridge when the Daleks were coming towards them. Yeah. And uh, Robert Jewell, I think, who was the Australian, I may get may have that name wrong, but I think it was Robert Jewell who was the Australian Dalek operator. He was yelling, come on, you're getting out of line. You're not keeping up with the others. And apparently was berated by this Dalek operator. You get inside one of these things and try it out. So that's kind of based in reality. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's amazing. It's fantastic. But, <laughs> so but uh, there's another great story I thought you were going to, to say from the Richard Martin interview, which was uh, about, uh, what Warris Hussein wanted to do. <laughs> you have to, is that uh, reliable? Yes, in fact, there was the instance where, uh, you know, Richard obviously worked with Warris a lot and uh, Warris apparently said to Sidney Human, as relayed by Richard Martin, but Sid, can't I do passage to India? To which <laughs> Sidney Newman said, we may do passage to India, you're going to do F and Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but it was like that kind of wistful passage to India. <laughs> and in fact, he did end up doing passage to India, except to not exactly after Doctor Who. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sometime later. I was actually surprised by how much, because, you know, we're used to Waris Hussein as he looks now or mm-hmm. in the last few decades. But Sasha Dewan is actually quite. It's astonishing. He's obviously the slightly Hollywoodized version of yeah. Waris, yes. but I don't think Waris minds that. No, I'm sure he doesn't. <laughs> but I also like to imagine that um, because uh, he also plays the master in years to come, he's going back for his vengeance on the doctor after <laughs> after being put in all those bad situations of lots of exposition. So we're going to tie her up and exposit at her for an entire episode. <laughs> so I reckon that is the master, right? Because he gets left behind in World War Two by the Doctor on the Eiffel <laughs> oh, Tower. And then he gets a job <laughs> in 2012 or 2013. Finishes directing <laughs> passages to India and then goes off to meet the Doctor. <laughs> but just going back to the Daleks for a minute, if I may, actually thinking further about what you were saying. Sure. Uh, there, Greg. Um, the way they introduce the Daleks in this program is beautiful. The yeah. way you see them from the inside, you don't get a clear shot of the outside. You get all you get is these shots of people looking at them and and yeah, Verity with her fang. Yeah. Um, Could you be more specific? She, she was holding a cigarette as well. Um, and uh, and uh, but and then you see them and you see those beautifully reconstructed sequences yeah. of the Daleks, which are just Gorgeous. so well done. And you can see how. In such a tiny space, the whole thing is being created in, which makes it so magical. And it realised when I saw them trundling past, and we both, Brian and I turned to each other and said, yeah, 
they were phenomenal. Yes. I mean, 1963. That the design is and television. The like this is something is incredible. that you know, it's extraordinary. And, and the design, Cusick. yeah, Cusick. the build. It could have been dreadful. It could have been made out of cloth. Yeah, like one of the original or cardboard. Ideas. Yes, one of the original ideas was: would, could it work? Because you know, remember Terry Nation wanted them to be like ballet dancers, yeah. or not ballet dancers, particular kind of Russian Georgian dancers. State Georgian, dancers. Georgian, I beg your pardon. Yeah. Yes, Georgian state dancers. Like you know, you don't see the feet move; you just see this thing. And one of the original ideas was to create like a kind of a a wire mesh and then drape these cloths over it. We all love Alpha Centauri. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, but basically would have and been that. Victoria but Waterfield. <laughs> <laughs> so they would have had a skirt like the Crotons. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Would have been like that. That was the original thing. <laughs> Didn't that go yeah. that well? I, I, well, again, budget. The, the Cusick really gets we claustrophobia, it, and he yes. really get. And don't forget, this is a. Have you built your bomb shelter? Have you got your new Anderson shoulders? Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, yeah. we only we only Duck had the Bay cover. of Pigs a year before, mm. so the whole thing of that the, the claustrophobia of the Dalek sets. It's, it, that really is extraordinary, and it's it really hard. brings home that incredible original design for the Daleks. Because even in light of the twenty first century RTD version of the Daleks, which rebuilds them as something which looks more industrial. It's a tank. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, more sort of real to the touch, but still keeping the silhouette. Those originals in situ look beautiful. And yeah. fragile. And incredible. And their fear works both ways. I think that we feel their fear yes. compounds our own fear. Yeah. They're not robots. They're not speaking with robot voices. They're not emotionless. Nick Briggs in a wig. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, it's so great. great. Yeah, it's- in a Liberace wig. Let's be specific <laughs> yeah, yeah. here. Yeah, he's kind isn't it? <laughs> Who is he being? Who do we think he's being there? Is oh, he Peter Hawkins or Hawkins. David Graham? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say I admire Mark Gatiss's restraint when redoing those scenes from the Daleks that he doesn't have the Daleks say exterminate. He has the Daleks yes. say historically accurate, fire. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, it's all historically accurate. That stuff is all historically It's beautiful. Accurate. Are you conflating five-ish doctors, though? Because I'm still it's not, seeing yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not just the lines that are right. It's the intonations which yes. are right. Yes. And I think that's yes. what makes it so magical, yes. especially Absolutely. from the regular crew. Yeah. 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 And it is just for us. I mean, that's not for the not we watching this over the anniversary but, week. But that's because it's made by people who love it and yeah. know that that's – it's good so easily have just been just all the same lines or approximately the same lines just – read in a completely different way. Yeah. It's so well done. So the reason that I mention having met people like Warris Hussein Richmond is I used to do the interviews for Doctor Who magazine over a number of years, which is where I got to meet a lot of these people. And so I've met Warris twice. I did two interviews with him. And I think that this story does justice to him um, because he's such an interesting man and such an interesting character that to build the story around him was the right choice, I think. The woman who plays Verity, who was obviously in High, lovely Jessica Rain, is called the midwife. So magnificently oh, she's, good. She's, she's also Reverend Go Lightly from the Unicorn and the Wasp's wife. Oh, oh she is. <laughs> and in other things as well. She's actually the only one that I really fault because she's just too warm and soft. And everything we know about the the Verity. wonderful and talented Verity and from Janet Straight Porter, who most of us have met when we were young children, who was best mates of her and other persons in the business, like you know what she did to the creator of Rock Follies, and then became um, Verity was never a puff piece. She was right. never soft. So there are the little moments of steeliness. No, really, we do know there's this. So, no, I know she's not soft, but there's actually soft and there's speaking in it with a soft voice and carrying a big stick kind like of soft. Like Thatcher. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. No, I exactly. Um, yeah. So I, I think she was more of that kind of mould. She was very strong. I won't say yes, hard very because strong, yeah. I wish to be respectful, but talking to well, women, I to know. Be. Well, yeah. we know women who have worked in the industry either on the sidelines with her or who have friends who developed these things. And no, Verity was not a gentle person. The reason she succeeded is because of all the reasons that Simon said. I don't know if we've ever mentioned this on the podcast, but doesn't she come to everyone's attention as a production assistant on a show called Underground, Ooh. which was going out live and one of the main actors died during the during the broadcast and she managed to keep it going despite this that's right yeah yeah right. it's like i this remember this story. story i'm just looking it up yeah that's right but, but she's sydney newman's assistant over at itv or whatever yeah. they called it at the yeah. time. where she'd worked with jackie hill so that was yes. true friendship yeah, right. yeah an actual genuine friend, real friendship she, yes. i mean she was 28 when she got this job so that's incredible yeah i mean now even now yeah it's yeah ridiculous yeah and it's pretty impressive to think about the kind of person she would have had to have been to have made her way in the BBC at that time, uh, like Paddy Russell, 
um, yeah. another incredible woman who I think was the only female director on staff until Julia Smith Julia came Smith, along. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, although Verity is clearly whip smart and forthright, was she brittle and that got her as far as she went? Or what, did she have to become brittle to make her way in the BBC. She was already pretty strong. She was sacked from yeah, Granada after six person. months for being yeah. a mouthy young woman. <laughs> so, yeah. But don't forget, she got six O-levels at Rodine and then went to the University of Paris. Wasn't that Rada? <laughs> <laughs> Same difference. But yeah, no, and her dad was a very successful Jewish accountant, much like our other hero of the podcast, Joan Collins. <laughs> so, yeah, she came up with a sense of if you want to take on the British establishment and the class system, you're going to have to be extraordinary in every way. It's another Thatcher principle, isn't it? And you're going to have to beat them at their own game. Richard Martin said that he broke his finger once, slamming it down on the desk, telling Verity Lambert to bugger off. And he, he, said, he said she came right back at me. That's why I loved her. <laughs> that conjures so many pictures. <laughs> he was a very interesting man. He didn't have very nice things to say about David Whittaker either. But, you know, in, at the end of the day, you wonder, is the problem with everyone else? Or is it no. I mean, <laughs> we look at Richard's stories as they appear on screen and we look at everyone else around him and you know, all's fair, but yeah. Is there anyone that you feel was underserved by this? We've mentioned David Whittaker. By um, Jackie Hill. Yeah? Yeah. There, I mean, there's not that much time, but yes, it is. There's a great tragedy about Jackie Hill, isn't there, where we can never be sure Little that fanboy. she knew how. How powerful her. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, we know a lot of fanboys from the early 90s who would would pay homage to her and, you know, worship the feet. And she would give them DVD copies of stories that you just couldn't get. Actually, no one in Sydney right. got a list. So, so, and she, she got it. But I also think that she was professional enough and hopefully aware of her own talent enough that she saw it as another job. Yeah. But I honestly don't believe the show would be here if it wasn't no. for her. And that. I also think that the love of Jackie Hill's Barbara is something that's developed over the years, not just because of her death. I just think it's something that's appreciated more in the 21st century you than it was so? in the 20th. Yeah, At I the time? So. I just I'm not saying we didn't like it. I, I think it was just all too – it was just too mysterious. We have to remember, yes, there were illicit copies of these VHSs going around that you could barely see or hear <laughs> when you watch them. But the vast majority of fans did not have access yeah. to that. No, no. And it's only – in the very early 90s when things start getting released on VHS that and BSB Sky Bean, all that kind of stuff start. Yeah, uh, she died there. in, what, 96? 93. No, no 93. It was before the, oh, it was before the 30th it was anniversary. So, so it's exactly. See, it's quite early. So yeah. she's effectively – she's one of those things that's discovered, you know, rather like the fact that the title fight is actually isn't the worst story ever. So yeah. thing. Well, you know, kind of. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it also tracks fandom in the – gay fandom rose, Jackie Hill's reputation moves from fantastic to fabulous. Yeah. And so that's yes. why she becomes it's iconic. That, yeah. As we come of age, so does her but that, reputation. And exactly. there is that thing of gay, yeah, certainly young gay men looking for, and let's not even go into the psych of it, but looking for a, a woman who plays a strong person in, in the Joan Crawford mould. And she's practically unique in that regard in the program. I yeah. also think she's the best one on screen. She elevates and ties Bill's performance together and knits it into a workable shape. And every scene she's in with him are some of the best scenes in the first yeah, series. definitely. I was going to say that Jackie and William Russell were were um, cast early because they, they were effectively the leads and the other characters developed into stronger roles as it went along or devolved as Susan yeah. did. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's one of the things too that is clear that – Bill into a rat-infested pit of screaming. <laughs> well, Hartnell, Hartnell's the sort of titular character, but he's not the main character no, when it all. starts. No. And so not only is he doing sort of 40-week years or, or longer, but suddenly he's the main character who is saying all the lines, which is not really what he signs up for. I mean, we talked about this on, a, on an FT many moons ago, where if you're looking at co-leads in Doctor Who. The only time there has ever been a true co-lead for Doctor Who is William Russell uh, yeah. because Ian is clearly the lead character along with the Doctor. And as fabulous as Jackie Hill is and as wonderful as Barbara is and is key to the action and those early episodes, it goes back to what we were saying about the stuffiness of the BBC and, for want of a better word, 
patriarchy in this story in that Jackie Hill clearly was not as valued by the yeah. BBC no. as William Russell and William Hartnell. So when you have the salary negotiations, the edict comes down from the BBC high ups, give Bill Hartnell what he wants, give William Russell what he wants. Jackie Hill is disposable if she won't accept these terms. And you just yeah. think that is so far divorced yeah. from the the weight of what they brought to the program. Yeah. She was every bit as integral to it. It's just not the way that things worked mm. then. I don't know whether this is a bit of invented Peter Haining apocrypha, but uh, the first Radio Times cover, which is for Marco Polo, has Mark Eden with Hartnell on it. And apparently, according to that telling of the story, William Russell was livid that he was not on the cover of the Radio Times instead of Mark Eden because he regarded himself as the leading man of the show. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. Because yeah. it's probably what was sold to him. Yeah. At the time, I well, think he came in as a leading man. Well, that's, what I mean. that's what was sold him as the role. He'd been the lead in Adventure of Silence a lot a few years before. Exactly. Yes, and it's a fantastic saw that. performance. I saw that recently, actually. Yes, and let's not forget that he was not like cast as like the young lead because he no. was almost forty yeah. when he was cast. So he wasn't like some twenty-five-year-old whose yeah. first job it was, and he was like the young action man. He was an established actor. Oh yes, yeah. he'd been in films like the man who uh, the man who was it the man who wasn't there the one about um, where they drop a dead body into the Mediterranean during the Second World War with some invented plans to try and put oh, the nuts. Yes. Is, it, is that the man that wasn't there or the man? The man who haunted himself. I was no, going to no, say. But he's he in is, that. He's actually yeah. in that as a young RAF pilot. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, his career started really early. He is yeah. the BBC's affordable Roger Moore. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, the Doctor's a character part. He's not the leading man at all. He's the crazy old man who gets them into scraps. Legitimate. He's a legitimate old <laughs> yes, man, not variety. But going, but going back to what you were, what you were asking about um, who gets the raw end of the deal, um, not uh, so much – we've talked about David Whittaker, but um, some of the cameos, there are some cameos missing. You know, we have Gene Marsh and Annika in the Scary yes. yeah. Farewell Party. Where's Peter Purvis? Was he just not available or is he actually somewhere on the cutting room floor? I think he might be on the cutting room floor because I have a memory of them doing one of those flashbulb scenes outside Television Centre, which has Peter Purvis in it, in his celestial twin. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, and, and Dodo with the O's red singer. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Dodo absolutely got the amount of screen time that she deserved. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know- no, no, I'm not talking about Peter Purvis. I'm talking about uh, yeah, cameos, the real one. Cameos, yeah. by the way. No, no, Peter Purvis is not in it. He um, might have not been developed. Mark Eden, in that shot, we can see Annika and the wonderful Jean Marsh looking exactly like yeah. You'd expect Sarah Kingdom to look like not after being dragged through the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, just a few seconds from the end of Dalek. <laughs> I don't know why these women even put up with us. <laughs> but there is a much older fella behind them. It's not Toby Haydock in a wig because he's at the bar. He's the but there is, but there is someone <laughs> yeah, behind fail, them. Failing um, to serve Warris. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was trying to think, it's okay, it's not Mark Eden because we know what Mark Eden looks like. Do we know who he was? It is in the list, but it just spins. Isn't parts. Mark Eden Donald Bavistock at the start talking yes. to? Yes, of course he is. Yes, he is. Oh wow, that's right. Okay. Yes. He really is. Yes, yes. wonderful. Yes. Yes. It would have been wonderful if they'd had a Radio Times cover and given it to him. <laughs> <laughs> now, is there a cameo that uh, everybody noticed just after Caroline Ford's cameo? No, the little so Dennis they, is it Dennis? <laughs> Dennis, your dinner's your on the table. Tea's ready. The, the camera pans into through the window into the living room, and a little boy is watching the end of the Daleks. He turns around, and it is Kit and Connor can- from Heartstopper. And, oh, wow. and once yeah. you realise it's him, it's so obvious. It's, it's so him. obvious. He turns around and we both went, that's Kit Connor from Heartstopper. And, and we looked it up and yes, it was. It, 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 yeah, it is like this little boy and it's him. Yeah, wow. Doctor Who turned us all gay. <laughs> I think that given the way the story is structured around Hartnell and his performance and his difficulties in the role, it's understandable but a bit of a shame that Maureen O'Brien doesn't get a bigger deal because, I mean, it is very clear that she was kind of keeping him going going. and it was was her departure perhaps more than Carol Ann's departure that had a huge effect on him, I think. So in some respects you could argue that – that's emerging of yeah. characters. He's hit hard by her departure, by 
Caroline's departure in this, whereas in reality it's, it's, it's more, more It's ends. kind of a, a series of blows, isn't it? The first real blow is William Russell, Jackie Hill and Verity Lambert all leaving. Yeah. Very, Basically like, at the same time. Yeah, yeah, which is something that Bill might not have recovered from, except for the fact that Maureen O'Brien and Peter Purvis were actually very good friends with him. He relied on them and trusted them. So they kept him going a little bit longer all through that tumult with John Wiles, the new producer. Mm. Well, but, um, Maureen's only got one story with John Wiles, doesn't she? Yeah, Maureen. Maureen does well, yeah, I know, but um, Verity yeah, but, is yeah. effectively gone by the end of the chase. Effectively, oh, really? Okay. Yes, um, and so there's a couple more stories, but then it's really the departure of Maureen and then the departure of Peter Purvis, yeah. And so by the time you hit the war machines, as we see in the story, Bill is just adrift, he's got no one around him who loves him or caters to him because obviously Michael Craze and Annika they came in and you know, this was someone they didn't know, they hadn't worked with, they were keen to make their own way. And so there's just less tolerance of his foibles. Yeah. I mean, Annika doesn't like Bill. No. And she will still say things about him being difficult to work with. She's the source of the story where, isn't she, where Bill has a driver and they've they all go into a pub for lunch or dinner and or the something. And the, driver, and the driver's left outside the car and Annika says, oh, he should come in too. And he's and Bill says, no, he's only the driver. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, like it's hard to unpick the truth of that. Yeah, and exactly. She obviously had a bad experience of Bill. It was kind of sweet to see her at the party. Yeah. And, and given that, it's remarkable. In fact, what's remarkable about the story is that Warris and Verity – managed to win Bill round so comprehensively. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also because at the end of the day he wasn't getting any other work. Yeah. Two, there's that. That's true. But they obviously made the effort. They they were visionaries and they knew that they could deliver something and they brought him on board with their vision. They took the time with him, which is what someone in his position needed. Whereas, you know, and there's no fault to be laid here, when people like Michael and Annika and John Wiles came in, they didn't take the time clearly yeah. to understand him and try to get him on board with what they were doing. Yeah. For um, Warris and for Verity, that was their big break effectively. They had the opportunity to take it further. They took the opportunity and made something wonderful out of it, whereas um, the other people were inheriting something. They weren't making it. It That's wasn't right. a new thing. They needed Bill Hartnell and yep. they knew why they needed him, whereas I don't think anyone understood that in the later years. And, you know, time had moved on. The show had moved on. Maybe it had moved on beyond Bill Hartnell. We could have had John Wiles as a sort of fantastic pan villain. villain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That was we, a missed opportunity. He only needed one scene. We could, have, we could have had the scene where he suggested to Bill that they go out onto the surface of the moon and, you know, the air was blue within minutes apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the right length. I mean, you could have made it 15 or 20 minutes longer and included a bit of Maureen O'Brien and included a bit of John Wiles. Yeah. And, and it, it, it does everything it needs to do. It turns it so. more into a docudrama. It's very exactly. long. Yeah. And that comes back to the question. It, it wasn't made for us. It, 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 I know it's it was. constantly challenging. <laughs> well, yeah, but it wasn't because it's, you know, it's very expensive. When yeah. they when they sold it, it, when they sold it, they didn't they said it wasn't made for us, but as soon as they started making it. <laughs> but it isn't yeah. that the brilliant tightrope that it walks? Yes. Is, is that it is yes. meant to be a mass entertainment program and it absolutely tells you the story in a digestible yeah. and entertaining way and gives you an insight into the people who actually made Doctor Who something special and what it was. But it also is a love letter to the fans. Yeah. And to pull off that balancing act is something incredible. And, 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 and to the that's BBC. why people like Wiles and Whittaker and O'Brien don't make it in there because they have yeah. to pare it down. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. that it actually manages – to hit that balance perfectly well. But they play to the fans perfectly by all those convention and yes. <laughs> anecdotes which have been learned by rote, you know, yeah. no BEMs, bug-eyed monsters, you know, all that sort of stuff. They are all utilised to tell the, yeah. the broader audience what it was about. Well, Lime Grove, they're complaining about Lime Grove Studio D and yes. four cuts per episode. Yes, you yes, know, all, all those, of that. Oh, the fact that all of that stuff manages to make it in there is extraordinary. And Mark Gates is having fun with that line about no BEMs where he says no brains in jars because <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who will do that not once 
but twice in its original. <laughs> but what's interesting, and Verity was always, you know, told the anecdote about, you know, Sidney Newman hauled her into his office about the fact that, what did I say? No robots, no bugger monsters, no that sort of stuff. And and she gives the same, in this, she gives the same defense of it. You know, they're not bug-eyed monsters, they're a civilization that's had a nuclear war and they've had to retreat into these shells and blah, 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 blah. And it is actually Again, why Doctor Who is so great is because they're not just monsters. They're not just robots. There's another layer of depth to them. Yeah. And I think that's what this helps to underline. And Mark turns that moment into a character beat for Verity, for yeah. treating Verity as a character. It's not just the fact that she stands up to Sydney and, you know, she, she tells him what's what. It's when she's leaving, she turns around to him after she's just been hauled over the coals and says, by the way, I want to repeat, no one saw it. Yeah. And that's her yeah. parting yeah. shot. And so you think she's not cowed by this yeah. at no. all. She yeah. also stands up to him about the the title sequence as well, which yeah. he thinks is too scary, and she says, "No, it's brilliant." And, and the music, yeah, the music. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because there is, you know, because that, that was are. what was frightening. <laughs> yes. uh, that was what was frightening. People were scared by the music, like when it first came out. It's weird and strange. It sort of demarcates this weird twenty five minutes of TV. Yes, from it, what's around it. Yeah. 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 My big disappointment, if you're talking about cuts to the floor, all of that analogue tape up and down the corridors, I really would have liked that extra 12 seconds of Delia Derbyshire. Yeah. Hodgson. Mm. She is extraordinary and there isn't an electronic musician in the UK. Even Kraftwerk knew who she was. She's really important. And there was more of, I think, a comparison between her and Verity as, you know, forthright fashionable young women making their way in the BBC that could have been made. It's a shame it was left on the cutting room floor. Making their way or forcing their way. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about my favourite scene, which is Verity's departure, where we go from the surface of the planet Vortis where they're inexplicably having the party because who cares? (laughs) (laughs) And we go into the TARDIS for her to (laughs) talk about why she's leaving. And there are moments in this where I tear up. Obviously, originally when Matt Smith appeared and saluted him. Even though he is so, so terribly green screened in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, he's not really there, you know. (laughs) He's not, but uh, anyway, I'll talk about this later. Yeah, but- it's. I think that that's a companion departure scene, and it's it yes, takes absolutely. place absolutely. on the TARDIS set, mm. and so she's telling Doctor Who that she's not going to stay with him any longer, and I think it's so beautifully done. And mm. she kisses him and goes, doesn't she? Yeah, it's yeah. proper lump in your throat and cereal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a decent departure scene as opposed to, I just met someone, I'm going to go get married now. Yeah. Well, oh, it would have been brilliant if they'd pushed Verity out in airlock. <laughs> <laughs> they just lock the doors and tell her she has to get on with her life. <laughs> oh. Here you go, Verity, get on this trampoline, bounce away. <laughs> And of course, the other one is Matt's final appearance. Yeah, that was kind of nice. I mean, that that I mean, I liked it. It's 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 good, but but I don't know whether it was necessary. No, I absolutely necessary. I absolutely it loved it. I mm. think it is the perfect concluding moment. It's Bill Hartnell realizing that. Despite the fact that he's been on this wonderful journey, he's effectively been forced out of the role. He has set up something which will run and run, and this will be his legacy. It's the legacy that he never had, and he's found it. And it's also the doctor's chance to go in there and salute him for making it possible yes, as yes. well. It's, 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 it's actually not the 11th doctor. It's actually Matt Smith. Yeah, no, if I can put it that way. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking it's the Doctor. You know, it's like the the Doctor has Bill Hartnell to thank for his existence yeah, in a way. Okay, yeah. And the look on Matt's face, I mean, Matt never doesn't deliver, but the look is so affecting. It's such kind of yeah. fondness and mm, almost yeah. saluting him. It's beautiful. The only issue I have with it is it just nails it to the Matt Smith era as opposed to nailing it to eternity if it was – you have to have someone there to be but the doctor. Do you not think it's nailing it's it to the 50th anniversary? anniversary. Yeah. So that's fine it's too. Nailing it to the 50th, yeah. But um, seen out of context from the 50th anniversary, it's just like, why is why this guy? Why yeah, not, why is why Jody not somebody not else? Yeah, I, I Where's Shooty? I suppose, yes. No, no, exactly. And I, and I suppose that's why I, that's my only subtle problem with it, yeah. um, is it actually comes down to that fact. It makes it less timeless. 
the yeah. fact that it nails it to the 50th. And in fact, if you're going to nail it to the 50th, you're almost better having Peter Capaldi standing there as as the future, as yeah. the, the yeah. next one. No, well. I have to disagree with well, that. Well, I, I think just, the contrast between yeah. William Hartnell as the first Doctor and Matt Smith as the youngest ever Doctor leading True. it forward 50 yeah. years later is something yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's the only bit of um, magic yeah. in it. Yeah. And I suppose it can, we, can afford, Mark, we can afford a little bit. Mark Gatiss is a bit literal, I think. He wouldn't, I think, have written the scene that we imagined at the beginning mm. where the Doctor gets into the TARDIS and sort of disappears yeah. uh, at the end. He just wouldn't do that. But this was enough magic. Yeah. It, talking about Mark Gatiss again, we sort of mentioned towards the beginning of this that this is the best thing he's ever done for Doctor Who. And I, I wonder whether it's partly because, you know, he's writing this as a fan in the way that you can't really write the actual program as a fan without making it terrible. He's writing from what he knows. <laughs> he's writing from what he knows. But I'm actually wondering also too whether his Doctor Who episodes are not actually what he really wants to do in the episodes. It's kind of a bit of a compromise with the showrunner of the day. Um, but this is just a natural thing that happens. And so there's always that, that conflict, that bit of – it means they don't quite sit as nicely as this does, which is is his baby. The one thing that I love about it, and this is just a small thing, is, is, the, is the way it does end with the clip from the actual clip of Hartnell yeah. from Dalek Invasion of Earth, which for any fan of our age who were, was experiencing the five Doctors for the first time. Yes, in, tying the 50th into the 20th. Tying yeah. the 50th, no, it, but it, it does. It, it oddly ties the 50th into the original but also into the 20th because of that. Because that, for, for many of us, I mean, unless you lived in Britain with, you know, the five faces repeat, um, this is the only bit of Hartnell yeah. that we ever saw in our fan youth yeah. was this fragment which which starts the five doctors and it's forever associated with an anniversary and it's almost more in the five doctors than it is in Dalek Invasion of Earth. Yeah. If you yes. know what I mean. And I think that's a lovely way to, to finish it off. Rather than finding another speech is to just use that speech again. I mean let's not kid ourselves that if the massacre part four existed, that wouldn't have been the speech that was used. Yeah, I think that's True. a magnificent speech and I think it is a slight shame that this production sees Bill unable to deliver that speech. I agree. Where he really, really nails it. It's so good. It's best Does thing he? about the massacre. Arguably. <laughs> I, thought, I thought he is. I mean, he's not stumbling because that is actually the one of the inaccuracies. He, he doesn't stumble over no. the speech nearly as much. But I think he does stumble over it a bit, doesn't he? He says in Chatterton. Yeah. He says <laughs> Chatterton. Yes. Okay. But, it's but that's consistent with, that's consistent <laughs> yeah, with the yeah, character. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Doctor has been getting on in the night of the Doctor. In the meantime, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can keep up with us at Flight Through Entirety on Facebook, at FTE Podcast on Twitter and on our website, flightthroughentirety.com, where you'll find links to our other podcasts, Bondfinger, Jody into Terror, Maximum Power and Untitled Star Trek Project. Until next time, remember, it all started out as a mild curiosity in a junkyard, and now it's turned out to be quite a great spirit of adventure, don't you think? Thank you very much for listening, and good night. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, still sobbing. Bye. <laughs> That was Flight Through Entirety, starring Nathan Bottomley, Peter Griffiths, Greg Miller, Simon Moore and Richard Stone. Theme arrangements by Cameron Lamb. This episode on the set of The Reign of Terror was recorded on the 10th of July 2022 and released on the 20th of November. Keep an eye on your podcatcher this week as Flight Through Entirety celebrates Doctor Who's 50th and 59th anniversaries with four new episodes over the next seven days. See you back here on Tuesday. Do we want to talk more? I don't know. Yeah, I don't mind. We can drop it back. I, yeah, okay, drop it back. I think David Bradley is abs- – <laughs> I think David Bradley absolutely nails it. Um,
uh, as we've discussed earlier about the, you know that uh, bit from that that interview post Tenth Planet when he's doing the pantomime or whatever, and and the, the gruffness and the and the and the, yes. the seriousness there, he he really gets that. He he manages to get an entire performance out of effectively one one bit of film footage that exists of, of Hartnell. Um, my favourite sequences of him is when Sydney's telling him that the time is up and he's yeah he's going to be moved on, and then the subsequent sequence with um, his wife. In front yeah. of the fire. I mean, it's just so. I don't want beautiful. to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's really beautiful. Okay, I'm name dropping all over the place in this episode. <laughs> that is your function. But I, I've worked with David Bradley. I worked him on with him on the Granada series, Reckless, oh, and he is like such. It? Yeah, he was. He played Robson Green's father, um, and he is such a warm and lovely man. And the fact that he brings that gruffness to Bill Hartnell is a proper performance. I mean, he's. He's 17 years older than Bill Hartnell yeah. in the role, which is quite amazing when you think about it. Simon, you and I are five years younger than William Hartnell when yeah. he's cast in the role. I yeah. mean, you just can't really get you your head around that. Um, and he's also about five feet taller than William Hartnell. <laughs> <laughs> but he does such a great job of capturing the essence, not only of the Doctor, but of the man. And that's that's a difficult thing yeah. to do in a role. I also find it a very respectful performance. He's, he's very keen to portray Bill in all of his shades um, and not to be disrespectful or to make it into a humorous thing as happened uh, when next he played the part on TV when he was super sexist and a bit dim in my view. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we'll talk eventually <laughs> about what's going on there, but it was a he was a good choice to play the first Doctor in Twice Upon a Time. Yeah, and Twice Upon a, a Time, time is, is lampooning the Doctor for better or for worse, yeah. whereas, you know, this doesn't lampoon William Hartnell. No. It's possibly a difference in the writer. Yes. That leads to that. Yeah. The other well, thing Mark Gatiss has a ke- heavy David connection Bradley to both. I've noticed yes, in indeed. recent years is he was in another show uh, called The Strain where he's basically fighting vampires. So I just like to imagine it as William Hartnell Vampire Hunter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he sort of works as in like he's in Broadchurch and it's in Broadchurch, rather like Richard Herndl in um, that Blake 7 episode. Uh, Nebrox. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you, you've, got, you've got a kind of a, a, an audition piece. You came in William too Hartnell. quick with that name. <laughs> 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 yeah, so you don't want to wait for them to bring around the mangan. Do no. you know? <laughs> what were you saying? I think I said it. <laughs> what do we think? I'm good. Okay. Good discussion. Yeah. It's just, I it's was just beautiful. Really oh, sorry. Can I just have one more yeah, line? Yeah. You can edit this out. This for me still remains the real 50th anniversary special. This is the the external-facing 50th anniversary special. The Five-ish Doctors is the internal 50th anniversary special. And then they do this other thing as well. And it's all tied up with when you originally watched it. So I watched this with a group of fans and two – a one we were misty eyed at the end of yeah. it because this is just this is our story this is the story of the program we love it's the story of the program that we grew up with and we're watching in real time how it how it became that thing it's quite incredible yeah that was good you're upset that I'm saying Do you not like Day of the Doctor? I think Day of the Doctor is fantastic. I think it's a bit ordinary. Do you? I think it's a really good one. Yeah, yeah. But this is the 50th anniversary for me. Yes. Yeah.